Our scripture reading this morning is from Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 178. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Would you join with me, please, in a word of prayer? Father, we come now to the time in our service when we are under the word of Christ. And I pray that you would give us the grace indeed to place ourselves under the word. Not to be in judgment of the word, but rather to be judged by the word, to be shaped by the word, to be corrected and transformed, and for some of us even born again by your spirit ministering the word of Christ to us. Father, I, I plead with you for your help by your spirit. I know I'm not adequate to effect changes in hearts and in souls, but you are, and you've given us your word, and your word preaches the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So work among us in power as the word of Christ goes forth today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to give you a couple of things to be listening for and to look in the text to see as we get started today. I want to ask you a couple of questions to have in your mind as we go through our text. First, do you know why it is that the Exodus generation of Israel did not come to possess the promised land? Do you know why that is? Second, what work do we see the Lord do in the hearts of the children of the Exodus generation, this second generation, what work does the Lord do in their hearts that causes them to be able to possess the land? As we said last week when we 
introduce the book of Joshua, the events in this book are pointing to something beyond themselves. They're pointing ultimately to the eternal promised land, to the new heavens and new earth. And I'm wondering if you know whether you will possess that land. Will you occupy the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ and his people? How do you know whether you will? And what if you aren't one of the people who will possess the land? What happens then to you? Everybody in this room fits in one of those two categories. Whoever you are, whatever your background, however you arrive here, you will either possess the land with Christ and his people or you will not. And we'll see in our text together today what that means for each of those groups. Now, last week we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, the Lord charged Joshua to lead Israel into Canaan, the land that the Lord had promised to give Israel through the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. And we see from the beginning of our text this week, verses 10 through 18 of chapter 1, that Joshua has embraced his marching orders from the Lord because in chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, Joshua is going to go and tell Israel to get ready to enter the land. He gathers the officers of the 12 tribes of Israel and tells them to let the nation know to prepare to pass through the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land three days from now. In verses 13 through 15 of Joshua 1, Joshua calls on the men of valor among those who descended from Jacob's sons, Reuben and Gad, and from the half of the people that descended from Joshua's son, Manasseh, uh, Joseph's son, Manasseh, that is. And Joshua reminds them of what Moses has already commanded them. Though they've already conquered the lands that they're going to inhabit east of the Jordan, they're still to take up arms and to help their fellow Hebrews conquer the land west of the Jordan. And after that, they can settle with their wives and children and livestock in the land that they already have come to possess. They're to fight. Notice with me chapter 1, verse 15. They're to fight until the Lord gives rest to their brothers, their fellow Jews west of the Jordan to the Mediterranean. That's an important word, rest. Since Adam and Eve's fall cursed humanity and indeed the whole cursed universe has not had rest. And we've been looking for it ever since. In Genesis chapter 5, Noah's father Lamech names his son Noah because Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. The Bible says Lamech called his son Noah saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You and I, we're looking for rest, aren't we? You're looking for rest in the decisions that you make, maybe even more than you're aware of. We all want rest. Rest from toilsome labor. Rest from strife, rest from sin and from all of the effects of the curse. And that's what the Lord is holding out to Israel in the conquest of this land. Rest, rest from wilderness wandering, rest from their 
enemies. And Joshua assures them in verse 15 of chapter 1, Israel is going to have that rest. The Lord will give the nation the land to take possession of it in faithfulness to God's covenant promise to Abraham. And so the officers of the people in verses 16 to 18 assure Joshua, we'll do what you command. We'll go where you send us. They pledge to regard Joshua as they regarded Moses. What a helpful word from these officers to Joshua. Verse 17, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. We obeyed Moses, we'll obey you. We don't regard you as lesser than Moses. And then they encouragingly speak a blessing on Joshua. May the Lord your God be with you just like he was with Moses. And then they pledge that whoever among the peoples rebels against Joshua and disobeys him is going to be put to death. We're going to see that pledge made good before the book is out. And then chapter 1 ends with the officers of the people charging Joshua for now the fourth time in chapter 1 to be strong and courageous as they prepare to enter the land. And so you see that as our text gets started today, our text is chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 5 and verse 15, we see an assurance of possession of the land. Joshua tells the people, the Lord's going to be with us. The Lord is going to give us this land. And as we ask and answer from the text, the question that's the sermon title, who will possess the land? We see first an assurance in verses 10 through 18 of chapter 1 that because of the Lord, Israel's going to possess the land. And in chapter 2, we see that those who will possess the land consist of those both Jew and Gentile. Now, if you were to just lift Joshua chapter 2 out of your Bibles, I don't recommend you do that, and just read from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3, you'd find that the story of Israel conquering Canaan would be told just fine without the events of Joshua chapter 2. You'd have a cohesive story. But God the Holy Spirit was pleased to inspire the inclusion of the content of Joshua 2 in this book. So what's going on in this chapter that's so important? Well, it begins with two spies going from Israel to Jericho to make a reconnaissance of the city before the nation gets there to lay waste to it, as we'll see next week in chapter 6. These two Hebrew spies, desperate to keep their, uh, their identity hidden, not have their cover blown, they head to a place where it wouldn't be all that unusual to find travelers, people who are not from Jericho. They go to the house of a prostitute. And this prostitute's name is Rahab. She's a Gentile a non-Jew. She's an inhabitant of Jericho. But somehow or another, their cover gets blown and the king of Jericho sends a message to Rahab. You find it in chapter 2, verse 3. Bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But Rahab doesn't do that. Instead, she hides the Hebrew spies. And she says that when the gate of the city was about to close at night, the men left. And she adds, pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. In reality, though, these Hebrew spies hadn't left Rahab's house at all. She put them on her roof and covered them with stalks of flax. 
But those pursuers who were sent to Rahab's house by the king of Jericho, they're fooled by Rahab, and they head out to pursue what they think are the Hebrew spies leaving the city at night. Maybe you hear echoes in the hiding of the men sent from Joshua, the hiding of baby Moses in Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh's just issued an edict that every Hebrew baby boy is to be thrown into the Nile and drowned when he's born. But when Moses is born at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2, when Moses is born, his mother disobeys Pharaoh's command and puts Moses in a basket of reeds, hides him under reeds, as it were, and caulks the basket and then places the basket with baby Moses in it in the Nile. And maybe you know the story, the basket's found by Pharaoh's daughter under God's sovereign providential care, and Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses as though he were her own son. Moses is hidden by reeds so that he wouldn't die at the hand of God's enemy Pharaoh. The Hebrew spies are hidden by flax so that they won't die at the hands of God's enemies, the people of Jericho. But we have to deal with the fact that Rahab lied to the men sent by the king of Jericho. Look with me, chapter 2. In verse 5, Rahab says that the men left her house before the gates of the city were to be closed at night. What do you do with her lie? Well, the Bible tells us what to do with her lie. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Rahab's actions were an act of faith. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The book of James commends Rahab in James chapter 2 for demonstrating that she had been justified by receiving the spies and by sending them out another way. James talks about her sending them out another way. Rahab's lie to the men of Jericho revealed that her allegiance was not to the enemies of the Lord, but to the Lord himself. Rahab was showing that her loyalties were with Yahweh. And so in keeping these Hebrew spies safe from the harm that these pagan idolaters in Jericho wanted to do to them, she showed that she was actually in covenant community with the spies because she obeyed the command to love her neighbor. She obeyed the command to love her fellow worshipers of Yahweh as herself. In keeping the spies safe, and in letting them get their intelligence about Jericho regarding their plan to destroy the city, Rahab showed she was on mission with the Lord, the Lord who was going to destroy Jericho and give it to his people as an inheritance. So maybe you're asking the question, so I get to go around and lie now? I think you ought to take a page out of Rahab's playbook. If you're ever asked a question by an enemy of God's people that would mean grave harm would come to your brothers or sisters in Christ to give them the information thereafter. We must obey God rather than men. This doesn't make all lying fair game. But in the rare case when you might be faced with lying to protect brothers and sisters in Christ versus coming out with all the information and putting your brothers and sisters in Christ in harm's way, lie. 
Now, some of you are going to struggle with this and say, no, Mitch, a lie is a lie is a lie. I had a seminary professor who talked with us about this very account and who applied it to his own life and said, if there was a burglar at my front door who meant to do my family harm and he asked me if my family was inside, I would tell him yes and trust that this was all part of God's sovereign plan. Now, there are, there are people more spiritual than I who are smarter than I, who reason it that way. I'm just telling you, I don't reason it that way. I don't reason it that way at all. You won't find a place in the whole of the scriptures, not here or anywhere else where Rahab is mentioned, that even hints that she shouldn't have done what she did here. In fact, the scriptures commend her for it. They call her actions an act of faith. But really, what's the act of faith from Rahab? What's behind her act of faith? is the confession of faith that she makes in verses 8 through 13. Look at those verses with me. I want to read them. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, you might see in your Bibles. That's Rahab referring to the Lord in his covenant name, the name by which he's known to his people, Yahweh. I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that he has, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this confession from Rahab, for the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab confesses in chapter 9 what we've already seen, or in verse 9 of chapter 2, what we've already seen in chapter 1. She confesses that she knows the Lord has already given Canaan to Israel. Yes, they've got to go take it, they've got to conquer it and fill it and possess it, but the Lord has promised he would give it to Israel, and so it's sure. And Rahab knows it's sure because she's come to know who Israel's God is. She's come to understand something of the Lord, Yahweh, and the hearts of the people of Jericho and the hearts of the people elsewhere in Canaan melt within them. What an evocative picture. Their hearts melt when they consider the power and the greatness of Israel's God. They've heard how the Lord miraculously caused the Red Sea to part, and they've heard how Israel under Moses thoroughly defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, because he wouldn't let Israel pass through his land in Numbers 21. And Og, king of Bashan, who opposed Israel also in Numbers 21. And so Rahab's taken in these events and clearly the Lord has given her grace to see that Israel's God, Yahweh, is God. He's not just the tribal deity of the Hebrews. But do you remember her confession in verse 11? No, Yahweh is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. He's not just the God of some tribe. He's the God of all creation. And so she pleads with the spies to deal with her with grace and truth. 
She asks them to deal kindly, that is, graciously with her family and with her father's house. And then she asks them uh, in verse 12 here for a sure sign, a, a true sign is another way to translate that. A true sign that when the Hebrews destroy Jericho and the city's inhabitants, that she and her family are going to be spared. And the spies agree. They pledge to her, when Israel destroys Jericho, when the Lord gives Israel Jericho, verse 14 puts it, they are going to deal kindly and faithfully with her. They will deal graciously and truthfully with her. And in verses 15 to 21, the details of the spies' pledge of faithfulness to Rahab is revealed. Now that the men sent from the king of Jericho are pursuing the spies elsewhere, she lets them out of her window, her... Uh, where she lives is built into the wall of the city. So when they leave her house by rope, they're leaving the city and they're to hide in the hills outside Jericho for three days while their pursuers look for them. After those three days, they will be safe from death at the hands of their pursuers. But before they go, they're going to give Rahab a scarlet cord that she's to tie in her window when the city's destruction begins. And if she'll demonstrate faith in their promise by tying that cord, when Israel passes through Jericho, all her family who are in that house are going to be passed over. They'll be spared when the deadly Israelite army comes through Jericho on that day. And again, you have echoes of Moses' ministry, echoes of Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. You'll remember that all who had the blood of the Passover lamb on their house were spared when God saw the blood and caused the plague of death to pass over. And so too now, all who were in the house with Rahab will be passed over when Israel inflicts death on the inhabitants of Jericho. And so picking it up in chapter 2, verse 22, after three days... These spies are rescued from death. In my mind, this is clearly one of the Old Testament events Jesus was pointing to when he said in Luke 24 that the scriptures teach of his three-day resurrection from the dead. And these spies come back and report all the events and the conversations back to Joshua. And Joshua concludes that indeed the Lord has given not just Jericho to Israel, but to all of Canaan. Those who inhabit the land, their hearts melt away as they hear of the mighty acts that Israel's God has done for Israel against their enemies. Now before we leave chapter 2, I want you to make sure that you're seeing what it is that this passage teaches us about who God is and about who his people are. God is a God whose mercy and love encompasses even Gentile prostitutes like Rahab. Surely, hers was not the only heart that had melted at hearing about the Lord's demonstrations of his power against Egypt and the other nations that opposed Israel. But God gave Rahab the grace to have a heart that didn't stop at fear, but rather arrived at faith. He caused this inhabitant of Jericho, Rahab, to see that he was God in the heavens and the earth beneath. He put in her heart a love for the Lord and a love for his people, even to the point that she would rather side with Hebrew strangers over against those who were her, her fellow inhabitants of Jericho. And according to Matthew chapter 1, 
the Lord caused a man named Salmon to marry Rahab. And together they had a son named Boaz. Boaz, the son of a Gentile mother. And Boaz, as we heard last summer, married a Gentile woman named Ruth, serving that Moabite widow as her kinsman redeemer. Rahab's great-great-grandson was King David. And even further down the line, of course, came the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Rahab is in Jesus' family tree. Do you hear that? Rahab, the lying Gentile prostitute. I receive that as good news for me. You ought to receive it as good news for you. If the Lord isn't ashamed to have Rahab in his family, there's hope for all the rest of us. And it turns out, doesn't it, that those who are going to possess the land are any, Jew or Gentile, who have faith in the Lord and who believe he's able and will keep his covenant promises to his people. Rahab had faith in him. Her actions and her confession in this chapter prove it. Now in chapter 3, we see that those who are going to possess the land experience salvation through judgment. As chapter 3 opens, the people of Israel begin their march to the Jordan River. And after they had lodged at the shore of the Jordan for three days, we've already seen that instruction in Joshua 1:11. the officers tell the people that they're to follow the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God at a distance, 2,000 cubits, the text says, that's about a half a mile. There's to be a distance between the presence of the Lord and his people, just like you see at Sinai in Exodus 19. Before the Lord gives the law to the people through Moses, his presence descends on Sinai after three days of preparation, and God tells Moses to instruct the people not to go up into Sinai or even to touch it. And so after Joshua gives these instructions to the people, the priests lead the way. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. That's the physical demonstration of the Lord's presence among them. And in verse 7, all this preparation ends and the Jordan crossing begins in earnest. And the Lord tells Joshua in chapter 3 and verse 7 that through this event, Joshua is going to be exalted in the eyes of Israel as Moses was. It's going to be plain to Israel that the Lord is with Joshua as the Lord was with Moses. And we see from the verses that follow, verses 8 and following of chapter 3, why it is that the ark goes first. The Ark of the Covenant was built while Israel was still in the desert, according to the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses. When the people of Israel weren't moving from one place to another, the Ark rested in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And that room, which was accessible only by one man, the high priest, only on one day, the Day of Atonement, that Ark is where God's presence rested. It rested over the lid of the ark. And so the ark going first signifies that it's the Lord who's going to fight for Israel. It's the Lord who's going to cause Israel to possess the land. Notice what Joshua tells the people in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So how will Israel know that they possess the land? 
Joshua says, because the Lord your God is with you, signified by the ark. And so when the priests carrying the ark begin to get into the Jordan, the river's waters pile up. The Jordan was miraculously stopped and piled up in one heap, verse 13 says. And the people crossed the Jordan on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan, verse 17. And lest we think that these guys walked through in water that was up to their ankles, verse 15 tells us that this happened during flood season at the spring harvest when the Jordan overflows all of its banks. This was a miraculous work of the Lord. And I want to again just stop and make sure that you're seeing what's happening here. The nation of Israel has been resurrected from the dead. The spiritual death of the wilderness generation is now behind them. The death that's symbolized by wandering in a desert for 40 years is finally behind them. And Israel at long last is in the promised land. God's Firstborn son, as the Lord calls Israel in Exodus chapter 4, has been resurrected from the dead as the nation passed through the flooding Jordan. A new exodus for a new generation. And as they pass through this, this instrument of judgment, the Lord spares them. God saves his people by rescue from judgment. Throughout the scriptures, waters, especially floodwaters, like we're explicitly told here, floodwaters are seen as a sign of the Lord's judgment. You can think back to the flood account with Noah. By means of floodwaters, the Lord judges the whole earth, save Noah and his children and his wife and their, and their, uh, their sons and their wives. Jonah's rebellion against the Lord is, is punished by being thrown into a turbulent, churning sea. David says in his wonderful psalm about the Lord's forgiveness, Psalm 32, David writes, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Israel at the Red Sea walked through on dry ground, but what did the flood waters do to, uh, to Egypt? They destroyed the Egyptian soldiers who were pursuing Israel to enslave them. And kill them. And so God caused Israel to pass safely through the Jordan's floodwaters that otherwise would have meant their destruction and death. And as they crossed, he was with them. The priests carrying the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan as Israel passed through. And this chapter, of course, isn't telling us about the last time that the Lord himself would save his people through judgment. This miraculous Jordan River crossing pictures for us God's work for his people on the cross. On the cross, God himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, caused an instrument of judgment. The cross on which the Lord Jesus was judged not for his sins, but for our sins. On the cross, Jesus was condemned and we went free. On the cross, 
Jesus was destroyed. The floodwaters of God's wrath and sin and death were not held back from him. He was overcome by them as he satisfied the Father's wrath and anger toward our sins. And then, and then Jesus died. But this Jordan River crossing isn't only a type of Christ's cross, it's a type of his resurrection. After three days of preparation, Israel crosses from the death of wilderness wandering into life in the land flowing with milk and honey. And after three days in the tomb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, God's true firstborn son, he's rescued from death. And he leads his people spiritually with him into the place that he's promised for us, the place where God dwells. And so we see that the only ones who will possess the land God has promised for his people are those who by God himself have experienced salvation through judgment. Israel went in the land by only one way, by being saved from the floodwaters of the Jordan, by God himself. And Christian, you and I, we've been saved. We've been saved through God himself, sparing not his judgment and wrath against his son. And we've been brought, we've been raised from the dead with Christ. We've been brought spiritually into God's presence now. And we will bodily dwell with Christ in the promised land, eternally when he returns. That's because his father didn't spare his son from judgment, but gave him up for us all. In chapter 4, we see that those who will possess the land remember God's remembering. If you've read Joshua chapter 4, it can be a little hard to keep track of what all is going on here. But the gist is, in Joshua chapter 4, after Israel has passed safely through the Jordan, the nation, under Joshua's command, the Lord gives this command to Joshua and he to Israel, Israel creates two 12 stone monuments, the 12 stones commemorating the 12 tribes of Israel. And these two monuments commemorate the deliverance that they've just experienced. And so they take stones out of the Jordan, and one of the monuments that's described in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, was placed in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the priests stood with the ark as Israel passed through. And so at various times of the year when the Jordan wasn't at flood stage, those who were uh, at the place on Jordan's banks could see that memorial in the midst of the Jordan. But then on the western shore of the Jordan, on, that is on the Canaan side of the Jordan, there's another 12-stone memorial. It's erected at the Lord's command to Joshua. And these were apparently large stones. Well, they weren't pebbles. The Bible says that a man from each of the 12 tribes had to carry the stones on their shoulders. And they set them up, as I say, on the banks of the Jordan in Canaan. And look with me at chapter 4, verse 6, as we're told why these memorials are set up. Joshua says, they're set up that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the Waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And Joshua's going to add down in chapter 21, he's going to add to what these stones are supposed to call to mind. Look with me at verse 21. 
And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We're told here that these mighty acts were done so that the nations would know the Lord's might and so that God's people would regard him with fear and reverence. But as I've said in your outline, I think you can regard these monuments as gifts to Israel from the Lord that help them remember the Lord's remembering. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it's helpful to remember the Jordan River crossing. It's certainly a mighty act of God. But that crossing is the miracle by which the Lord got his people into the land that he promised to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. This memorial helps Israel to remember that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Do you see it? The memorial helps Israel remember that God remembered his covenant. And it turns out we have a couple of signs like that, don't we, church? We saw one last Sunday at North Beach. The Lord has given us baptism as a sign of what the Jordan crossing typifies, our being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, our passing from death to life through faith in Jesus. In just a few minutes, we're, we who believe are going to participate in another sign. It's the Lord's Supper. It's a sign to us, again, of what the Jordan River crossing typified, Christ offering his body and blood for our salvation on the cross. It typifies our being saved through, out of, judgment. On a Sunday when I'm not preaching and our oldest children aren't in discovery, I get to sit by them during communion. And when I take the bread and then later when I take the cup, I'll just lean over and I'll whisper to our girls, what is this a sign of? And that's my way of using these memorials, these signs that God has given us in the way that, Lord, that the Lord wanted Israel to use these memorials to teach the children that God has given us about how God has worked mighty saving acts for us at the cross. So we see from chapter 4 that those who will possess the land remember God's remembering his covenant promises. And they remember, we remember by the means that God has given us to remember. And for the church, that's baptism and the Lord's table. Finally, we see in this fifth chapter of Joshua, this, these opening chapters of Joshua, that those who will possess the land keep covenant with the Lord. And this is kind of an all-encompassing truth. All the other things that we've talked about today that characterize those who will possess the land fit under this category of keeping covenant with the Lord. Those who keep covenant with the Lord are of both Jews and Gentiles. They are those who've experienced God's salvation through judgment, and they remember God's covenant faithfulness to his people. All that we say about those who will possess the land can be summed up in that they keep covenant with the Lord. 
So now by the time we get to Joshua chapter 5, Israel has arrived in Canaan. They've crossed the Jordan into the land. And once again, we see in verse 1 that the people in the land have melting hearts. News of what the Lord has done in drying up the Jordan has traveled fast. We're told that the king of tribes throughout the land have heard about it. And so now that Israel is on the brink of beginning their conquest, the Lord wants the people to be spiritually ready. And that means that the sons of the Exodus generation have to be circumcised. I want you to understand, it's an indictment. It's a damning indictment of the wilderness generation that these men haven't yet been circumcised. The law of Moses commands the Hebrews to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. But, but these sons of the first generation, of the Exodus generation, didn't have parents who would obey God's law even in this way. And as a result, verse 6 says, that generation, look with me at chapter 5, verse 6, they perished. They died because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their covenant unfaithfulness resulted in their death, resulted in their never entering the promised land. And so, Joshua makes knives of flint, and he leads the charge to have these men circumcised, as a sign of their participating in the covenant people of God and in obedience to God's law given to Moses. And once again, don't we have echoes of Moses' ministry? Echoes of Moses who had to circumcise his sons with a flint knife in Exodus 4, just as Moses is going to begin to lead Israel against their enemies, Egypt. I confess as I was thinking about chapter 5, you know, it's really a mercy from the Lord that he commands circumcision to be done when the baby boy isn't going to remember anything. But these are grown men, aren't they? And yet, they willingly undergo the sign of entrance into the covenant community. They're willing to be numbered with God's people and to take the mark, the sign that was given first to Abraham, They won't have to go to Gilgal to see the memorial stones. They're, they're going to walk around for the rest of their lives with a memorial sign of God's covenant promise and of their participation in that promise. And so, too, now does anyone who have faith in Christ. We get to walk around with a sign of God's covenant faithfulness and of our gracious participation in His covenant. The sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant resolves in the circumcision of sin being removed from the heart of anyone, male or female, who has faith in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, our hearts, the Bible says, if we have trusted in Christ, our hearts have been circumcised. When God gave us grace to believe, He cut off the sin that covered our hearts, and He gave us new hearts that love Him and obey Him, not perfectly, but truly and one day perfectly, when the Lord Jesus returns at the resurrection. And so our hearts being circumcised result in our being people who keep covenant with the Lord, as Israel did here. And in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 5, we see that they likewise keep covenant with the Lord 
by observing the Passover. If you've been marking the timeline, chapter 4 says that Israel passed through the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they set up camp at Gilgal. Then on the 14th day of the first month, four days later, they keep the Passover. That 14th day of the first month, maybe that rings in your ear as exactly the day that the Lord commanded the Passover to be celebrated at the first Passover in Exodus 12. So they celebrate the Passover on the day that God commands, showing again their covenant faithfulness to the Lord and obedience to His law. And the next day, the Bible says that they begin to experience the bounty of the land, chapter 5, verse 11. They, ex- uh, they experience that this is a land flowing with milk and honey, and so the manna, that bread that daily, miraculously came down from heaven for Israel in the wilderness, even as they grumbled and complained about it, that manna ceased because now they were in a land that was producing abundantly for them. They were no longer in the wilderness. Now before we move to the last verses in our text, I wonder if you've been picking up on how many times I've pointed out to you today parallels between Moses and Joshua and parallels between the miraculous acts the Lord performed during Moses' ministry and how they're echoed now in Joshua's time. I want you to see again that the events in Joshua are a new exodus. The first exodus out of centuries of slavery and bondage in Egypt and in the midst of a plague of death, the first exodus was a kind of resurrection for the nation of Israel. And so too, with this exodus generation, they have their sons circumcised, just like the first generation. They have a three-day preparation before the Lord visits in saving power, just like the first generation when God delivered the law. There's a miraculous water crossing, just like with the Red Sea, and there's a Passover meal. We have a new exodus. It's a resurrection for the nation of Israel. After 40 years of wilderness wandering, during which essentially the entire first generation dies, and during which essentially the whole of the nation demonstrates that they are spiritually dead, they break covenant through their rebellion and grumbling and unbelief against the Lord and Moses. Nearly all those who participated in the first exodus died in the wilderness. And so now there's a new generation And a new exodus out of the wilderness that's going to actually finally get Israel into the promised land. There's finally a generation that experiences passing from the wilderness into Canaan, as Joshua 24 will say, where they eat the fruit of vineyards they did not plant. And as Israel gets ready to inflict God's judgment on Jericho in chapter 6, notice verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. Joshua has an encounter. And once again, we see an echo, don't we? This is not at all unlike the one that Moses has at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And so as Joshua is near Jericho, he sees a man with a sword. Joshua's getting ready to fight. He's in battle mode, and so he asks the man, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? Don't you love the man's answer? No. But I'm commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now Israel cannot fail. God's going to give them victory. He has sent to them the commander of the Lord's army. 
What a blessed assurance as they prepared ahead to Jericho, the, the gateway of Canaan. And after hearing the man's response, Joshua falls before him and worships him and, and asks what he would say to Joshua. And the man says for Joshua to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy. And so Joshua does. Who is this man? There's a lot of debate. Because Joshua worships him, which an angel tells the Apostle John not to do in Revelation 22, and because this event so tightly parallels Moses' encountering God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, I'm inclined to regard this as a kind of theophany, an appearance of God to Joshua. Don't take that and run to a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. At least, it's not Jesus in the flesh that he would take on when he was placed in Mary's womb. That's an unprecedented event in the life of our Lord. And I, I'm helped by what John Calvin said about this verse, quote, I willingly receive what ancient writers teach on this subject, that when Christ anciently appeared in human form, as Calvin thinks happened here, it was a prelude to the mystery which was afterwards exhibited when God was manifested in the flesh. We must beware, however, of imagining that Christ at that time, in times like this here in Joshua 5, we must be, beware, however, of imagining that Christ at that time became incarnate, end quote. So I do think Joshua sees the second person of the Trinity, but Jesus is not clothed with flesh as he will be forever when he's born in Bethlehem. But Putting that particular discussion aside, what I'm struck by is what a reversal is taking place here. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were removed from Eden, there's an angel and a flaming sword that's placed at the eastern entrance to Eden, blocking Adam and Eve from going in again. And now Joshua and Israel are at the eastern edge of the land of promise, and again a supernatural figure and a sword are present. Only now... The people's entrance isn't being barred by the figure and the sword. Rather, now the presence of the man that Joshua sees and his sword aren't barring them from the land. They actually ensure that Israel is going to be able to enter the land and to possess the land, as we're going to see beginning next week. Praise the Lord. And as we think about how to apply this text... I want to say very plainly to you who are not believers, this sermon asks the question, who will possess the land? Who will possess the land of promise? Who will possess the final, eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth? I want to say to you who are outside of Christ, please listen to me. You who are not believers, you will not possess the land. Unless you repent from your sin and trust in Christ to forgive your sin and to give you peace with God. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return and restore this sin-cursed creation. And on that day, those who are not in him will face the worst kind of floodwaters of judgment. You'll be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus is going to conquer all his enemies, 
And you, my unbelieving friend, are his enemy if you don't belong to him by faith. And I, I have some of you in mind to whom I've ministered the gospel. You know, the people who inhabited the land that the Israelites came into, they at least had sense to hear about God's mighty acts and tremble. Their hearts melted in their chests when they heard about the Lord. How about you, unbeliever? Do you hear about God's mighty acts in our, te- in our text today and yawn? Some of you do. Some of you hear about God's mighty acts and your heart doesn't melt within you at all. You let it go right in one ear and out the other. And I want to say to you in love, that is so foolish. That is eternally foolish. I plead with you, unbeliever, do not be destroyed. Do not be destroyed. The Lord was merciful to a Jerichoite prostitute named Rahab, and he will be merciful even to you if you'll humble yourself and come to him for forgiveness and rescue from your sinful condition. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, how is it that we can apply these passages that we've seen today from Joshua? Well, I want to ask you, are you ready to possess the land? Are you ready for battle? Are you ready to enter and to take the promised land? This text ends with Israel demonstrating covenant faithfulness to God by obeying his commands regarding circumcision and observing the Passover. And the next stop on Israel's journey was Jericho. The conquest was about to begin. But before that, Israel encamped three days beside the Jordan to prepare to possess the land. And as we said last week, we're in a time of conquest, aren't we? And so I want to ask you who profess Christ, whether your heart is engaged in the fight. Is your heart engaged in the fight? Are you putting off the sin that belongs to your former life when your heart wasn't yet circumcised? You will be a distracted and double-minded warrior in the battle if you're playing around with sin. Maybe you're distracted and double-minded because there are hobbies that take your eye off the ball. I'm not saying all hobbies are sinful, but, but you know when you've given yourself to something too much, too unhelpfully. Are there things that you know you spend too much time doing that might not be sin in and of themselves, but pull at your heart so that you're not engaged in conquest? I call on you to put those things off. We need you in the fight for souls. Be single-minded. Be focused on the Lord and on His mission to fill the earth with His glory and to fill the earth with His image bearers. And so I ask you, as we're in this time of working to possess the land, this time in redemptive history when we're sure of conquest, but the battle is still raging, I ask you, believer, are you engaged in efforts under the leadership of the commander of the Lord's army to conquer the enemy and to plunder his camp for souls? Are you engaged? Are you engaged in prayer? Do you pray for souls? Do you pray for our church's outreach efforts and ministries? 
Do you pray before we have a youth retreat and during and after? Do you pray before we have a summer Bible camp and during and after? Do you pray before WIVs and during and after and men's nights? Are you engaged in participation in plundering the enemy's camp and in rescuing souls from the enemy's captors? Are you engaged in participation in this as much as you're physically able? Can the rest of the army here count on you? You who name the name of Christ, can we count on you to take up the weapon that God has ordained, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to win lost souls for the Lord Jesus and to see the Lord's territory advance in church planting and revitalization? Are you living like you're clear that it's still conquering time? Are you ready to possess the land? And lest you come out of here thinking, boy, I've got to do more and try harder in my own strength. Let me ask you, are you living like you're clear that the commander of the army of the Lord is with us and has guaranteed the victory? You know, you, you fight differently if you think that the battle is up for grabs versus when you know that the battle is is one. Are you living like you're clear that the commander of the army of the Lord is with us and has guaranteed the victory? Or are you more often found fretting about what the world's coming to? What's the world coming to? And you read this new story and that new story and listen to this uh, shock jock and that one and they just get you all stirred up. Do you spend more time cursing or worrying about the enemy's movements than you do getting charged up for battle, knowing that the land is surely going to be ours through Christ. Yes, the battle must be fought. It's fought in gospel proclamation. It's fought in gospel ministry. It's fought in prayer, always empowered by the Spirit, empowering the Word. And we must fight alongside and under Christ. But we must fight, and our fight our victory is as sure as our commander, who's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is going to cause us, brothers and sisters, to possess the land, all of us, all who have faith in him, Jew and Gentile, because he has saved us through judgment, because he has remembered his covenant with his people, and because by his grace and power, he empowers us to keep covenant with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've seen from your word today. And we thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one greater than Joshua, this conquest is sure. And it won't be a conquest only of Canaan. It will be a conquest of all of creation when the Lord Jesus returns to turn back the curse as far as the curse is found. And so until that time, cause us who have named the name of Christ to be prepared for battle to be all in in fighting to possess the land. And thank you that we fight from a position of sure victory because the Lord Jesus Christ will not fail. And we pray in his name. Amen.